You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, let me begin by saying it has been a heavy week. Uh, I was in Atlanta all last week uh, for some meetings with our church, Passion City Atlanta, and they were great meetings, some hard meetings, but it wasn't until later in the week that I decided one night to get online and just try to catch up on the news. And so I sat alone in my hotel room and just faced a deluge of human pain and suffering. You know, Passion City Atlanta, our 515 location is a block from where uh, multiple people were shot at a massage parlor in Atlanta one month ago. And since that incident a month ago, I read an article that day that 45 mass shootings have happened in America since then. Two in DC, two in Baltimore, one in Bryan, Texas, uh, just streets away from where Donna and I bought our first home and everywhere from Beaumont to Boulder and Chicago and Detroit and Milwaukee and all across America, so much pain. And then reading about Dante Wright and Adam Toledo and seeing all the pain being experienced and then the parsing of all the detail. And then I did what many people do. You're trying to read a lot of different presentations of data, trying to understand where's the truth and what's happening. And and then see already people kind of picking positions and fighting and defending. and, And it was exhausting to read and just deeply saddening for me to just encounter that pain. And I called a friend uh, recently. He's a uh, dear brother. He is black and a minister. And I mentioned that because I, I just wanted to ask him, how are you feeling in a week like this, seeing what's happening in the news? And he said, you know, I have, and he, he used an interesting phrase, racial weariness. He's because on one side, I know that it's the constant barrage of this data through, through the uh, computer screen and the mail and social media that, that just makes it so anxiety driving for me. He's like, but then there's real tragedies being faced and real grieving to be done over the real loss of life of teenage child. And he said, so I'm feeling this grief, but the instant onslaught and then people battling over details means suddenly I got to defend a position or defend myself from some other position. He's like, man, I'm just, I'm tired. And coming up here today, you know, it's interesting landing in the text we're in. It talks about the, the conflict and tension in the culture, particularly as it breaks along racial and ethnic and cultural lines. And, and coming in to talk about that, I was like, what, what am I meant to do as a pastor in this moment? Do, do I pull up the headlines and start parsing each different story? And I realized I, I don't need to do that. And it's not because they don't matter. But what my friend said to me, and which was so helpful, he said, man, I need to hear from my pastor what all believers need to hear from each other, that I have compassion for you. Co-passion. I suffer with you. And that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to grieve with each other, suffer with each other, hurt with each other. So I don't have a message for America. I don't have a message for the West. But looking at Passion City, D.C. and saying, man, it's been a hard week. And, and even this week, one of the last things I saw in the news, one of our own church family took a heartbreaking photo of the family of Officer Evans as they were carrying his body away from being honored. And after losing his life at the Capitol. And I'm like, man, there's just a lot of, a lot of pain and a lot of grieving in, in our house. How do we carry each other and hurt together? And I want you to know as your pastor, I, I care about you. And, and I love being the pastor of a church that, 
that is multi-ethnic. So we're coming from a lot of different places and backgrounds and have different skin color. And, and I love that. And I also know that that means when we hit difficult moments in society, we're starting in different places and hearing each other and sometimes missing each other. And I want us to be a place that loves each other and hurts when each other hurt and figure out how to grieve together. So I just wanted to start today by saying I love you. And we as a staff love you, all of you. And we want to be a church that walks humbly and graciously together. And then as I was thinking about today, I was like, I think what else I can do is try to help us answer the question, as the people of Jesus, how do we navigate conflict in the culture? And here's the fascinating thing, this text, which, you know, we stopped short last week, ran out of time, and then landing in this text, Paul is talking about how do we live as children of the king. If, if Jesus Christ is the Christ, the anointed one, the king who's building a new kingdom, and he's setting out the rules that the ruler is giving us. Here's how the, the children of the king work within the culture. Paul's talking about how we do it. And then Paul brings up in this text, he says, hey, within the kingdom of Christ, there's now no longer Jew or Greek, circumcision, uncircumcision, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian. He starts to bring up every fault line in the culture. This is the Bible. Paul's bringing this up. He brings forward in the conversation, hey, there's going to be places of friction where the, where the culture breaks, and it's going to be along racial, ethnic, religious, socioeconomic lines. The Bible's not afraid to pull those forward. And yet here as Paul does it, he begins to say, but here, let me show you how we as the people of Jesus navigate these fault lines, because here's the, here's the reality. They're the fault lines within the church where, where churches can break. And communities can break. And they're fault lines within the church because they are fault lines within the culture. And yet, I think the question underneath this text for all of us is do we believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us the resources to navigate conflict in the culture? I think that's a question we all have to answer. Does the actual death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ provide us any resources to navigate days of pain like this and hurt like this and, and conflict like this? Does the reality of Jesus' life and death and resurrection give us a resource that allows us to navigate conflict in the culture in a different way? Or are we stuck in the same boat as everybody else? And I think you have to actually answer that question. Does Jesus have any bearing on the difficulty we're facing today. Because if he doesn't, I don't know why we're doing this. And yet the reality is what I love about our gospel is it's not just a pie in the sky, ethereal philosophy. Because there's a lot of philosophies in the world today that are ethereal, let's all get along, but they are powerless and brittle when they land on the streets. And a lot of philosophies are shown to be insufficient when they hit the grit and difficulty of life. And yet our story centers on a real man who really lived, claimed to be God and claimed to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he was really nailed into a piece of wood and real blood dripped down as splinters drove into his lacerated back. And in the middle of that gritty, dirty, horrendous pain in real life, he could still speak out to those who were mocking him, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And at the center of our faith is a historical moment that does not bypass or gloss over the real gritty, dirty, bloody difficulties of life. And yet in them, you can still say something supernatural. 
that the Roman soldier sees and says, clearly, that's the Son of God because no one else speaks with that kind of graciousness in the midst of this much pain. Do we have a resource the world doesn't have in the cross? Let me tell you something. The world needs to see it. The world needs to see it. They need to see we have another way because here's the reality. They, the people who don't, no, Jesus, they will never take our philosophy of reconciliation with God, who they can't see, seriously, if they don't see reconciliation among us that they can see. If we tell the world Jesus Christ has unleashed a power that can reconcile rebel humanity with a holy God, but that power is insufficient to reconcile people whose skin color is different and cultural background is different and socioeconomic background is different. If this philosophy is powerless in what they can see, they're not going to buy it that it's powerful enough to reconcile what they can't see. They have to see it work if they're going to believe. So this is a gospel issue. I, I, um, was part of a gym years ago that um, was always pushing their personal trainers. They had personal trainers on their staff. And every time you show up at the gym, they're like, would you like to work out with one of our personal trainers? Would you like to sign up with a course with one of our personal trainers? But to be real with y'all, all of their personal trainers were terribly out of shape. Every single one of them. And I would look over at that guy and I was like, nah, I think I'm good. Like, why would I buy that man's philosophy if it's clearly not working out practically? Why would I buy that? Why would I literally spend any time and money on that? And here's the reality, though. He might have had a good philosophy. He might have had some real insight in, in what vegetables to eat and when to eat them. But the fact that it wasn't working out practically in his life meant that I dismissed his whole philosophy. And if we're going to tell people reconciliation with heaven is possible, if we're going to tell them the murder of a Middle Eastern carpenter several centuries ago radically reorients my relationship to the maker of the stars, that's a big claim. Why would your coworkers take that seriously at all? The only way they will is when they enter into the conflict that has been as old as humanity, that the fault lines break racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, religious lines. They see it happen all over the world. And yet they see in us a different way to care about each other and love each other and hurt with each other. When they see that, they'll go, surely the son of God is in their midst. And they will take Jesus seriously when they see the power of reconciliation in us. That is exactly what Jesus prayed. This is not Ben saying this or making this up. Jesus's only prayer sent directly at us. John 17, at the end of his life, looking at his disciples, he said, I do not pray for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. He prays through the centuries for us. And this is our King's prayer, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I and you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. The world will believe that God sent Jesus Christ when the world sees us get along. The gospel message will be legitimized 
Reconciliation with heaven will be seen as possible if we can live out reconciliation among us. But it's not gonna be easy. It's hard. And Paul in his mercy gives us ways to navigate it. And we'll see how many of them we can get in here today. But as we're in this passage, remember, we talked about this is the pivot point in the book. Paul's been presenting Jesus Christ as the king seated on the right hand of God. And he's launched a kingdom. He has radically renovated us. That when I put my faith in Christ, I am changed from the inside out. I'm something new. And I am a part of something new. What this passage calls the new self, that word self is uh, anthropos, humanity. I am part of the new humanity. And so it's individual, I made something new, but it's corporate, we are made something new. That's why he says, you're part of the new self in which there is neither Greek or Jew, male or female is what he says to the Galatians, but uh, barbarian, Scythian, that, that this new humanity is a gathering of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation knit together for the glory of God. And then where we are in this passage is talking about, now how do we conduct ourselves as the people of the king? And last week we looked at when we have Christ as a king, it radically changes our sexual ethic. That as we seek him, it changes how we deal with our sexuality. That it's not driven by self-gratification, but guided by self-donation. We don't participate in sexual immorality that's driven by covetousness is what it says. That is the unrestrained impulse for more for me at the expense of you. No, we have a generous sexuality that wants to give to the other and take in all of them. And that's why Christianity has some hard barriers around sexuality, that it's meant to be enjoyed within the confines of a covenant uh, in marriage, right? And that looks like restriction, but it's interesting in the early church that uh, the Roman sexual ethic was much more loose. It looked like freedom, but it ended up really hurting women and hurting kids, and in doing so, really devalues men as well. And then they saw the Christian sexual ethic, which looked like bondage. It was so restricted. And yet women were happier. Children were safer. Men had more dignity. And they looked and they were like, what looks like restriction is actually freedom. And what looks like freedom is actually bondage. And so the new rules of the king are not stifling rules. They're liberating rules. And so as we approach the the desire that God's given us of sexuality, we use it in a way that's commensurate with the the commands of the king. That is, I use it as a, as a gift to someone I've covenanted that I want all of you, mind, body, spirit forever, not just a part of you I can use. So it radically changes our sexual ethic and how we treat each other. We as a church won't use each other. We won't abuse each other. And now he moves on from the sexual impulse. He moves to how we talk to each other. And look in verse eight, uh, he says, but now you must put them all away. These are the activities commensurate with our old lifestyle. And that word, put them all away, he's grabbing the imagery of clothing, of taking off clothes. The idea is, he said, you were part of an old self, it says in the passage, that all of who you were under Adam, our, our first parents, were beautiful in the image of God, but broken because of sin. And so we are beautiful and every human being has dignity, but every single person is disturbed and depraved, all of us. And so we live out of a selfish place and we have conflicting desires and don't always do the best in the world. And so the reality is when we come to Christ, there's ways of living what this passage calls practices that were consistent with that old humanity and we take those practices off. Those are clothes that don't fit us anymore. And now we put on new clothes. And that's where we are in this passage. He's gonna give us a list of things we take off that was associated with your old life, take those off. And then he's gonna give us a list of things we put on. We are clothed in a new way as children of the king. So it starts with the things to take off. And he says, but now you must put away anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It's interesting, when he talked about sexuality, he, he started with the act, sexual immorality, and then he moves down this list to the inward motivation of covetousness. More for me, and I don't care about you. And this one, he goes the other way. And he starts with internal motivation and then moves to external activity. If we're gonna have some internal drivers in us that, that aren't healthy, that are gonna explode into some community unraveling ways of treating each other, we don't need to do that. And so last week was about we don't use each other. This week is about we don't abuse each other. And he says, when we begin to talk to each other, we put these away. What do we put away? Well, he says, you put away anger and wrath. Anger is, I'm upset about something. You did something that bothers me. And wrath is, uh, it's the word uh, thumon. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's where you get like a thermometer. It's the idea of heat. That someone does something to bother me and rather than forgive them or let it go, I hold on to it. And I let it mix with the chemicals inside of me and make a reaction to just kind of turn on the heat and I just get angry and angrier. I preserve it. Someone slights me and I hold it, right? And so I let anger turn into wrath. And then as it turns into wrath, it turns into malice. Malice is a deliberate decision to do you harm. That someone hurt me and as I think about it, the matter I get, and so I want to lash out back. And then slander is, it's the word blaspheme. It's, it's I take your name and I assault it. I assault your character or vilify you to somebody else. Or obscene talk is I don't do it to somebody else. It's abusive language. Rather than talk bad about you to somebody else, I just talk bad to you. I try to hurt you. I use words like a weapon to hurt you. And he says, this is a normal way humanity acts. You hurt me, I get rad stew on it. I talk about you bad and then someday I explode in anger at you. He says, that's a very common way of acting towards people. If you don't believe me, get on Twitter. And he says, that's what the world does. We don't do that anymore. So if you get online and someone upsets you and you slash out back, it's very natural, but it's not supernatural. And we don't do that anymore. We don't use our words like weapons anymore. We put a beat between anger and action. You just gotta wait. Uh, I gotta tell you a story. Uh, this week, I, I, um, I watched the YouTube video of Emmanuel Acho. He led like a a Q&A discussion with police officers. He has a YouTube channel, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And so he did this interview with him and police officers. And I just thought it was this wonderful presentation of healthy dialogue. He was asking them questions about their experience of being officers. They were asking him questions as, as his experience as a black man interacting with police officers. And it was just this beautiful model of healthy dialogue. I thought that, that's really cool that rather than separating, separating, and then becoming like angry, distrustful, they move towards each other. Proximity helps develop compassion. And I just liked the way he did it. So I just posted online like, hey, I thought this was a model of healthy dialogue. And I did something I never do. I read the DMs afterwards and just got assailed <laughs> by... Uh, Several people, one young man was like, you are a great pastor, but I am so disappointed in you. These, and he named one of the things in the news, this was not racially motivated and I'm so disappointed in you. And I, and, and I read this and you've had this experience, ruined my day. And I just walked around like, why did I read that? And I'm trying to move on to do something productive, help you study the word of God. And meanwhile, I'm just like, Kevin. <laughs> and I wanted to lash out at him. I was like, how dare you, man? You don't know me. And you ended your post with, I'm disappointed, like just trying to like, Kah! and then walk off. And I was like, and, and, but I had learned in life when you get 
punched, you don't punch back. That's what Paul told Timothy. Don't engage in word wars because you both lose and everyone who watches that loses too. So I just had to pray on it, had to sit on it, had to think about it. And then I did what, by the grace of God, I've been taught by other people. I wrote back to him, thank you for the encouragement, brother. Because his first line was an encouragement and, and I really meant it. I was like, hey, you said you think I'm an amazing pastor and I wanna acknowledge you said that. Thank you for that encouragement. And then I told him, hey, I think you need to reread what I posted. I wasn't trying to make a statement about anyone's motive or intent. I don't know any of that. I, I was trying to put out into the world a resource that models healthy dialogue because I think we need it. And I sent that off. And like an hour later, he wrote back, you're right, I'm sorry. He said, I got caught up in the polarization of the culture today and just popped off and, and I apologize. And I was like, huh, how about that? A little bit of heaven in the DMs. Who would have thought? And I'm proud of me for not going off. That's sanctification at work. And I'm proud of Kevin because how many people have the maturity to do that and to admit when they did something wrong? I'm proud of us. And I look and say, you know, this way of acting, I'm angry, so I hold on to it, stew on it, pop off. That is a society unraveling way to respond. It's not wrong to be angry, but what are you going to do with it? Is what you're going to do with it constructive or destructive? And in this passage, he says, man, we're not going to talk to each other's way. And then in verse 9, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self of this practice. Why not lie to each other? Lying is an inherently selfish act. What am I doing when I'm lying to you? Why would I lie to you? Because I feel like if you had all the information, it might disadvantage me in some way. So I need to amend data to make myself look better. And in doing that, I'm denying you information for you to make an informed decision, but I'm doing that because I care more about me than I do about you. Case in point, with my children, inevitably one of them will yell, Dad, so-and-so hit me! He hit me! He just kicked me! And I was like, for no reason? They're like, I mean... What was happening before that? What did you do? I may have punched him. Okay, so y'all were fighting. Let, let's, get the, let's get all the data points about what was happening here. But we all tend to do that. We tend to, to gravitate to some facts and uh, deny less convenient ones. And all of us do that to try to manipulate each other. And, and that's a, a selfish and a cruel thing to do. It hurts people. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I broke my femur, so my football career ended early. And I remember this girl uh, was uh, a reporter. She came into where I was doing rehab work on my knee, and she wanted to do an article on the football team that had lost three games in the last 30 seconds. Just brutal, brutal for them because this was an awesome team and I loved them and wasn't able to participate with them. So she came into this uh, room with me and she was like, hey, I'm doing an article on the football team. So what do you think about them losing all these games? And I'm like, man, it's heartbreaking. It's tragic. I, I feel sick for them because I know how bad they want it. And she was like, what do you think about them just fumbling the ball and losing the game in these last 30 seconds? And I'm like, it's brutal. It's heartbreaking. I, I hate it for these guys and I love them and all this kind of stuff. And, and so we did that for a few minutes and then she left. And then she wrote this excoriating article about this loser football team. And then she was like, Ben Stewart says, this team's brutal, horrible, and, and just starts grabbing words I used to talk about this team. And I walked down the hall and friends of mine wouldn't look me in the eye. Guys came up and yelled at me. People were furious at me. 
And I was like, what is going on? And then I read the article and I was like, she took my words, but she pulled out certain data, put in other data to skew a message. And she got the article she wanted to write, but that was at the expense of me and the expense of several of my friends and at the expense of our relationships. And, and that selfishness that led her to amend data hurt a lot of people. And there's a propensity in all of us to do that, to, to only want to read news that, that fits our vision of life and not hear other people's perspectives. And in doing that, boy, it can cause a lot of pain in the world. And I got to tell you, um, I don't think all media are liars or something like that. I really don't. Uh, I read a New York Times article this week, though, uh, about the findings of a professor in Dartmouth that he compared thousands of news um, articles on COVID this last year uh, from mainstream media in the United States and international media and scientific journals and local news. And he said it was fascinating. He used social scientists to kind of rate language as positive and negative, looked at all these different uh, news outlets. And he said that COVID coverage in the national media in the United States is almost 80, or is 87% negative. Almost 90% of it's bad news. He said, what's interesting is how much of an outlier it is. He said, in the international media, 50% of COVID news is good, 50% is bad. In regional media, 50-50. Scientific journals, 60-40. He said, but in US national news, almost all of it is bad, terrible, awful, terrible. And uh, this reporter that's reporting on this is doing some soul searching. He was like, man, in constantly telling the negative story, we're, we're not giving our audience the most accurate portrait of reality. He said, I realized I wasn't trying to be deceptive, but, but I'm not giving you a full picture of reality. And he had to do some soul searching on that. He said, I think as a reporter, you're looking for the problems in society, but if all you present the problems, you're skewing society. And he realized, man, I need to check how I treat people and teach them. And I think in our culture today, that's a real issue of, of uh, again, I don't think he was sinister or anybody, but, but there's a propensity in all of us to stir up fear and anger. And, and it's like we're living in Monsters, Inc., you know, where it's like, oh, fear feeds the machine. So let's keep feeding it fear. And we're not stopped to pause about how it's affecting the kids. And we're putting so much fear and anger in the culture and we're getting it through the news and then we're lashing out on it through social media. And we're creating a loop where we're not hearing each other and we're not hurting with each other. We're just winging knives at each other. And there's not much learning and there's not much growing and there's not much community building. And we need to stop and say, maybe is there a better way? And so anger and lashing out he says, that's part of your old self with its old practices. But we're meant to put on the new self, the new humanity, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. I love that because you are in your identity, a new creation. It's done. And yet you're still constitutionally a mess. So you're being renewed in the image of your creator. So I am made new as a child of God. And yet there's this process of renewal that goes on, that we're not perfect that we are brought into this new kingdom, but we still carry so much of our old patterns and habits with us that God has to work on us. So we have this new self and now we're meant to be renewed in knowledge. I keep learning, keep reading the Bible, keep looking at Jesus, that I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind, that as I peer at Christ, I become more like him. I'm renewed in knowledge in the image of my creator, that he was a, a builder and I wanna be a builder too. So the way I use my mouth, and the way I use my body, I want it to be constructive, not deconstructive. I want it to be compassionate, not harsh and angry and cruel. That God is working on me, and as he's working on me, I want to be people that step into the culture with compassion and in constructive way, not destructive, right? 
And then Paul lands in our text I mentioned earlier in verse 11. Here, meaning in this new culture, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here he's talking about these different categories where there was tension. Greek was, it was kind of the model Gentile, the model non-Jew was the Greek, the educated class. And as, as educated Greeks, they would look down on Jews who were uneducated. And then yet the Jew here, it says circumcised and uncircumcised. The Jew here had circumcision as, as a picture of we have a special covenant with God. So they looked down on the Greeks. You think you're smart, but we know God and you don't. And so Greeks looked down upon Jews and Jews looked down upon Greeks. Greeks looked down upon barbarians. Barbarian wasn't the name of a tribe. It was the sophisticated Greek looking down on the pagan, the ethnos, anyone from any other culture who didn't speak the Greek language. So barbarian was actually a slur because if you didn't speak Greek, it sounded like you were just saying bar, 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 and it was, you're uneducated. The Scythian, everyone looked down on. They were compared to wild beasts and dogs. And so here Paul's looking saying, hey, on, on ethnic lines and racial lines, you're divided and there's hostility. He says, hey, upon religious lines, you're divided and there's hostility. Then he gets into slave and free. He's talking about economic and social status and cultural status. Hey, you're divided. And we'll get more into that in weeks ahead. But it's profound that Paul here says, hey, these classifications are unraveled in the name of Jesus. And yet here he's looking at all this and he says, hey, Christ has knit together a body where there were all these cultural fault lines. And he's not saying they disappear like they don't matter, but he's saying our union with Christ now makes our union across these lines critical. That we don't divide each other in a hierarchical way. That one class or one race or one ethnicity or, or a certain socioeconomic bracket isn't better than the other. But we are all now family. We are all now brothers, equal seating, equal floor, equal footing at the face of the cross. And yet it's interesting as he says this, keep in mind he said this as people who are made new, we're put in this new body, but being renewed in the image of our creator. And what he's saying there is, this is a process. It's a process of learning. And the Bible shows us that. You know, Jesus' inner circle We've talked about this, that uh, there was conflict there. You had uh, one that was a zealot, meaning he wanted to overthrow the government. And you had one who was a tax collector, meaning he worked for the government. So within Jewish classes, they were in completely different political circles. And yet Jesus says, in my inner 12, I want you to get along. And Jesus works with these guys. Jesus dies. He's buried, resurrected from the grave in power. The Holy Spirit descends on the apostle Peter. Do you remember? And everyone thinks they're drunk because the church is partying. And they're like, what's going on with y'all? And Peter's like, I'll tell you, we're not drunk. The Holy Spirit of God has landed on us because we've been reconciled with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 3,000 people come to faith at the beginning of the book of Acts. Peter's walking through the streets now, leading in this massive movement of Jesus. He's walking into the synagogue and there's a paralyzed Jewish man who's begging for some money. And Peter doesn't just say, no, sorry, I don't have any money. He says, gold and silver I do not have, but what I do, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the guy rises up and walks. And then a few chapters later, a Gentile man who was a soldier, worked for the Roman government, which in the Jewish mind, this is an oppressor of ours. This, this man, uh, gets a vision of, you want to really know God, you need to know God's emissary and you need to send for this man to come tell you about him. Peter has a dream where God is laying out before him saying, rise, kill and eat all these different foods that used to be unclean. And Peter says, I won't eat what's unclean. And he says, don't call anything unclean anymore. 
of what I've done. And then when Peter rises up, God tells Peter, I am sending you to the house of a Gentile man, a man who is not Jewish, and I want you to tell him about me. And Peter says something fascinating in that whole dialogue. Peter says, no, Lord, which again is an oxymoron. If you call him Lord, you don't say to him, no. But yet here is Peter filled with the Holy Spirit leading the church, and God says, bring my gospel across ethnic lines. And Peter says, no, Lord, I don't want to do that. And God's like, well, you're going to do it. So, uh, head over to Cornelius' house. And here Peter walks into Cornelius' house. Peter, who when this Jewish man asked him for loose change, Peter's like, I don't have it, but what I do, I give in Jesus' name, rise. He shows up at this guy's house with a direct command from God and he shows up and says, you know it's unlawful for me to be here, so what do you want? And the guy tells him about the vision he had from God of Tell me about the, the Messiah, the one who's been sent and sent to you, who was in Joppa, which incidentally is mentioned only one other time in scripture, and it's Jonah, who God called to go give the gospel to the Ninevites, and Jonah didn't want to because he didn't want to cross ethnic lines because he had all this anger against the Ninevites. And so it's interesting how Joppa plays into the story of God's like, no, my love breaks human boundaries. I demand it from my people. And so Peter leaves Joppa and goes to Cornelius' house and says, well, you know what? God's at work. And maybe God's picture of humanity is bigger than mine. And he tells this man about Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls, and you see the gospel break, break out of this little ethnic conclave of Jews, and suddenly the gospel spreading to the Gentiles. Then you get into Acts chapter 13. And in Acts 13, the gospel spread to Antioch. And in Antioch, it says in 13.1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menonian, possibly, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's a massive passage because here, the entire church was located in Jerusalem, this Jewish enclave, and now the gospel's breaking out of the banks of this, of this ethnic boundary, and it's moving up into Antioch. And in Antioch, you get this passage where you have Barnabas, who was a Jewish man, Simeon, who's called Niger, that, that's uh, the Latin word for black or darkness, probably talking about his skin. Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene's North Africa. And Mananean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. That line would have blown people's minds because there's two Herods in the New Testament. There was Herod the Great. You remember him, that the Romans put him in power over the Jewish people. He oppressed them when he heard rumblings of a Messiah that might come. He said, well, then kill every Jewish baby under the age two in that town. Not popular among the Christian or Jewish people. And when he died, he divided his kingdom, and one of them was to Herod the Tetrarch, ran a fourth of his kingdom. This Herod, if you recall, uh, cut the head off John the Baptist to appease his wife and the hot young girl he got to dance for him. Not a great guy. And here, this guy, Mananean, is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. What that means is, when you were a young prince and went off to be educated, they would pick a friend, and that term can be translated foster brother. They would pick your little buddy and say, you journey through life with him. And so here, Mananean, the best friend through his entire life of Herod, the guy who cut John the Baptist's head off, this Mananean comes to Christ. And here in this text, his name is next to Saul. Saul, who was a Pharisee. Pharisees had ritual purity. They couldn't stand the idea of Jews working with the Roman authorities. And here was a guy who was best friends with Herod the Tetrarch. And yet here you have him. Lucius, Simeon, Mananian, Saul, worshiping 
and praying together. And in that moment, they couldn't call them Jews anymore. That's what you used to call people who believe in Jesus. You just called them Jews because they're all Jewish. And here in Antioch, they were like, it's not Jewish anymore. It's, it's Christian. They're the people of Christ because Jesus Christ has the power to break these chains, to, to, to work through these boundaries and to be, bring people together across political lines and across ethnic lines and racial lines and deep-seated hostility that goes back for centuries Jesus can knit them together. And he does it here. Peter struggled. When Peter went to Antioch, he just hung out with the Jews because it was easier. And he separated the church. You read about it in the book of Galatians. And when he does that, it says, Paul stood up in front of everybody and called him out and said, Peter, you are not acting in accordance with the gospel. That's how he confronts Peter. What you're doing by dividing us like this across ethnic lines is inconsistent with the message of Jesus because Jesus bought a community that's from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And yeah, there's friction and animosity and misunderstanding, but we work through it in compassion because he came to us, we go to each other. And he confronted Peter. And let me tell you something, Peter had to learn. And yet by the end of his life, Peter dies ministering in Rome. This Jewish man who didn't want to go to a Gentile's house because he was a Roman soldier now gives his life away to bring Jesus to the Romans. He was made new at the beginning of Acts, but he was renewed over time. And let me tell you, there's so much more to say about this. And again, we got to about half of what I intended to. But maybe this is God's timing, not mine. Come on, Colossians, you're off the rails now. But the reality is, the Bible doesn't minimize pain at all. And if I could get you to the next word then in verse 12, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What's going to give us the resources to love each other when you misunderstand me? We remember that these titles that were Jesus's, these are all titles that were given to him, he gave to us. He's the chosen one of God. He's the holy one of God. He's beloved of the Father. And he came to us and he said, I choose you. I'm making you holy and I love you, and I love them too. And so because I've done that with you, put on then compassionate hearts. That word hearts, it's the word lower intestine, it's guts. Compassion's co-passion, pashain, pain, suffering. That in the deepest emotional part of me, I hurt when you hurt. I was on a call the other day after that shooting in Atlanta, there's, there's a pastor call here in DC and I don't wanna give a lot of details because it's, it's a beautiful place for pastors to come and just talk about what's going on in their hearts. And I love this group because it's, it's so diverse ethnically. If, if it leans anyway, it's probably more black pastors, but there's a mix of all of us. And the pastor who leads it, who's black, brought us together after the shooting in Atlanta. And he started the meeting by saying, hey, one of my Asian American brothers here, after the death of George Floyd, he just called me and said, I don't understand, I don't know anything, but I hurt with you hurt and I'm here for you and I love you. And he said, so now after this shooting in Atlanta, he said, I just wanted to give us a chance as pastors to, to ask this brother if he would share with us and hurt where he hurts and, and hear him. And 
This Asian American pastor talked and he, he was like, I, I have conflicting thoughts and I have conflicting feelings. And, and what was so powerful for me to watch is all these black pastors were just encouraging him, just say them, man, just say them. He's like, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing. They're like, just say them. And he just started pouring out his heart. Did he get all the words right? Probably not. But these pastors just weren't intimidated by his pain, didn't feel like correcting them. Well, actually, if you look at the data, they, they weren't doing all that. They're like, just let, let's, let's, let's feel where each other are at. Because it's when I hurt when you hurt that we can just take the stinger out of so much of the pain we feel. When the stinger comes out and the pain bleeds out and we weep together and cry together and bleed together, then when all that's pouring out, then the next word is kindness. That's compassion in action. Then we can link hands and say, now how do we reweave the fabric of society together? Now, now that I've been humble and meek, those are the next words, that I've just stopped for a second to listen and say, share with me, no, I don't understand. And someone else says, I'll be humble enough to explain to you again. And as we don't give up on each other, but forgive each other as the Lord Jesus Christ forgave us, as we stay in that, then we'll weep a lot, we'll cry a lot, then we'll laugh a lot. We'll have compassion for each other and grace for each other. That's what I love. The, the word forgiving there is not the normal word for forgiving. It's built off charisma. We'll, grace, we'll, we'll just keep gracing each other because he graced us. And when the grace of Jesus that flows to us begins to flow through us, then as it begins to flow through us, we hear each other. We understand each other. We work towards solutions together. We may not be able to solve every global or national problem, but we can be a city on the hill. We can be a house of healing. We can be a place of understanding. And as we do that, the world gets to see, truly, the Son of God is in your midst because this is not normal. It's not normal for people to hurt with each other like this. It's not normal for people to suffer together like this. But if we could do it, if we could live like that, the power in it, would be transformative. John Newton, you know, was um, a pastor who had a horrific past and wrote about it in the song Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. He was talking to a young pastor one time who was watching someone in error and was just ready to excoriate this other guy and marshal all his resources to prove to that person that he's wrong. John Newton wrote to this young man, and we'll close with this. The Lord loves him, speaking of his enemy, and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you, likewise, and expects you to show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven, and he will be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. There's a lot of nuance we didn't touch on, a lot of details, but the heartbeat is there, church. If Jesus Christ could come to us while we were sinners, while we were wrong, while we were enemies and love us, 
then we may get to a place where we are completely depleted, confused, hurt, angry as a culture. But we can come to the foot of the cross and find that resource of grace, that supernatural compassion from Christ towards us that can maybe flow through us to others. I've seen it in my own life. I've watched God build bridges where there were once walls. And I believe he can do that in our church. And I believe we can be a picture to the world of what it looks like when those who have been made new are renewed in the image of their creator. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.